0: Psalm 42, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, to the choir master. So right away, we know this is a song. This is a piece of text, as many of the psalms are, that was meant to be sung. And not just sung by one person, but sung by a choir, likely in front of a whole group of people, because uh, contextually, what's the point of a choir if nobody's listening? So this is meant to be sung publicly it's a masculine. that's a bit of an obscure word even for scholars the root of it means to be insightful or thoughtful either in its musical expression or in its topic and so we can see that there's something really interesting the author wants us to grab in this song it says of the sons of Korah uh, doesn't mean necessarily the sons of Korah were the authors Scholars aren't certain about that. They may have been, but the sons of Korah were actually tasked with stewarding the worship of God's people in his temple. So these were the worship leaders of the day. These were Lacey and Priscilla, David. They were the Beatles of their generation, putting together great music so that we could all, uh, you know, this is where the metaphor breaks down, connect with God. Okay, let's read the psalm. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. while well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep. In my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And again, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. The title of my talk today is Unfiltered. God, be with me today as I speak, and every heart here. God, I thank you Uh, that you speak so specifically to us. Sometimes I know in a moment like this, you've spoken to me, your Holy Spirit's whispering ideas and thoughts that aren't even what the preacher is preaching, but it's because you know what's going on in my heart and life. And so I pray for that today, for each one of us. God, that this would be a space where your Holy Spirit would move freely and speak to us to challenge, encourage, correct, redirect, and strengthen us in our following Jesus together. Amen. Uh, my wife uh, is somebody who loves library. She works in a library. And this fall, or this winter, she decided to take a course uh, at UBC to improve some of her training. And so she took this course called Emerging Technologies in Library Systems, which somehow libraries have managed to make that sound boring. And uh, Congratulations. um, And and part of her course was to choose a social media platform that she didn't have any familiarity with and uh, explore it and try to imagine how a library system might use this social media platform to disseminate information to patrons or to communicate with people who are using the library system. And so uh, my wife chose Snapchat. Now, how many of you are on Snapchat? Let me see. Proud hands. You might notice the median age of the people who put the hands up is a little lower. Uh, The average, I looked this up this week, the average Snapchat user, about 60% or or more, about 60% of them is 24 years of age or younger, so it's, it's probably a platform personally for my wife and I. We've never been on Snapchat before but we had some fun exploring Snapchat. It's kind of a crazy thing. There's all these weird filters you can use on Snapchat. Um, you can um, like take a regular picture of yourself and then make it completely different. So I decided one day when we were doing this and just laughing and having fun that I might share some of those photos I took of myself. So here's a picture of me. This is just me, a regular ordinary picture. This is me um, filtering my head to look like a bowling ball. This is the joy of Snapchat. Okay, the next one here, I wanted to imagine what it would be like with no hair. I'm praying that we never go there. Here, I was, I was channeling, you know, a bushy hipster beard um, and a trucker hat. And lastly, I just got some sunglasses and was looking good, fire. Okay, take that off the screen before it's too distracting for my wife. Okay. Um, these these filters are all like silly, right? They're just fun, and and it's awesome. You can you can play around and, and be lighthearted, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. Um. But people use them for lots of different reasons. They use them to have fun, like we just did. But they also use them to be real in social media almost all the time, whether you know it or not. They're using these filters to try to make themselves look better, to try to impress you. They have filters that make your skin look flawless, and like you would never have a pore, or a bump, or or anything on your face. Uh, They have ways of filtering you so that you look like you have lost a few pounds, which is a great filter if you've been uh, eating a lot of chips and ice cream, like I have been this summer. Uh, There's lots of different kinds of filters, and there's lots of different ways uh, people change other people's perception of who they are and who we are, and there's all kinds of reasons why people do that. None of these are obviously an honest representation of self, and often what we see of other people in social media is not an honest representation of ourselves. And I was thinking about this and thinking about how often our culture's approach and how they present themselves to others is how we sometimes can present ourselves to God. That we try to make ourselves look better than we really are. I was thinking about this and and where we kind of came up with this idea and I realized it's not actually a new idea. We might have new ways of doing it, But actually, humanity's been filtering God's perception of them for a long time. Go back to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in Genesis. Sin enters, and what do they do? They filter, they hide behind bushes and they put clothes on themselves. They try to obscure the true reality of who they are because internally they didn't like something that was happening, and so externally they tried to obscure that. I grew up in the church and I loved growing up in the church. I'm so thankful I grew up in a community of people who love God and modeled that for me. But there were times and moments growing up in the church can be a challenge. And I remember moments where I would have questions or doubts about my own faith. I would wonder about certain things around my purpose in life, or my faith felt weak, or I questioned this part of God's character. And I remember being in an environment at the time where I never really felt safe to express that, where it felt like I had to be just right and I couldn't actually have the freedom or the authenticity to do that. And so I remembered learning how to behave before I actually felt authentic about it. I learned how to worship God really impressively externally, but inside I had doubt. And I was struggling with some things. And I got really good at putting on that kind of a performance. Maybe you can relate with that. I could come in even without thinking sometimes. It wasn't malicious. It was just what I did. It was familiar. I knew how to act. I knew how to serve. I knew how to, to, to worship. I knew how to be. And externally, I could be one thing. But internally, there could be something very different going on in my life. And we learn about how to do that in church church. in in life with God, we, we can learn how to behave properly on the outside, but internally not be aligned with that reality. And really, what I want to talk about today as we go through this psalm is that Jesus can handle the unfiltered you. And I want to really leave that with you as a thought. If you take anything home today, that's kind of my thought for you, that Jesus can handle you. He loves the fullness of who you are, and he embraces who that is. So let's look at this psalm together. Uh, this particular psalm has this underlying tone of desperation. It has this tone of, like, I'm searching for God in this moment of desperation. It starts, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear? before God. These are like strong emotive verbs. My soul's panting. It means literally to long for, to strongly desire, to crave, to cry out. That word thirst, it means to yearn for. It's this picture of a deer desperately looking for a flowing stream of water. Two reasons a deer would do that. The first is obvious. The deer is thirsty. It needs water. Maybe it's been running a long time. I have a friend I was with yesterday who's an ultra marathoner. Next weekend, he's going to run 130 kilometers in two days. We need to pray for him. That's just a little bit of crazy, if you ask me. But he he loves this. And this is, man, that guy has moments where if he doesn't get water, he's going to collapse. It's literally a life and death critical moment in his life. And that's the same for this deer. Man, he's longing for something. He's yearning for something. He needs a drink. And the metaphor here for us is, man, sometimes my soul so desperately needs to connect with who God is. I'm so desperate, and I cannot find that place, that source of connection. The second reason a deer might do this is because it's being pursued. Uh, sometimes when an animal is being pursued by a predator it will find a stream bed so that the predator might lose the scent of the prey and the prey can escape and so this deer being pursued may be looking for a stream bed because there's something coming against him something coming toward him that is threatening its health its well-being and its life I think there's moments in our lives and and experiences that we all go through that can relate with that. There's circumstances we face where we feel like life is chasing us down. Things we didn't expect to happen land in our lap or come at us and we don't know how we're going to get away from them. In 2017, my wife and I planted a church in Vancouver. It was beautiful, a small but vibrant community in Kitsilano and we loved it and God was blessing it and we were having so much fun leading. The first week of March 2020, we announced, guys, our church is full. It was a little smaller than this. We're gonna go to two services uh, next month. And then the second week of March 2020 came. Does anyone remember? That was a moment none of us will forget. And through those next two years, man, we went through some tough stuff, leading a church. I went through a really severe burnout and burnout recovery, and I'll save you the colds, I'll save you the, the long story, the long pandemic story. We all got a pandemic story, right? Uh, you could share it with your neighbor later. Uh, but my pandemic story resulted in us making a decision to end our, our church and fold it in and partner it with The Way last year around this time. And that was a hard decision. It was a sad decision. Uh, I cried a lot, and I shook my fist at God a lot. And I said, God, this thing that I thought you put in my heart to do, that I was sure you had a specific plan and purpose, it didn't work the way I thought. How come I felt chased down by that reality? I felt pursued, and I needed to connect with God in those moments. I needed to feel and sense his presence and trust in his purposefulness in my life. There were moments I was confused. There was moments I was bitter. There's moments I was hurt. I felt alone and in desperate need for God's perspective. It's my soul panting for the living stream, for the flowing water. God, make sense of my reality. Come into the re- real moment of my life and try to make sense of it. Now, I'm not the only one who's had pandemic stories or crisis moments, you've all walked through them, and we continue to face them in our future. When a friend betrays our confidence, when a diagnosis is delivered we weren't expecting, when a child chooses to walk away from their faith, when the bank account is in the red, and on and on and on, we have these kind of moments where our souls pant for his presence to make sense of our circumstances. And I love the, the author of this psalm here. He acknowledges who his primary need is. It really is God. He says, my soul pants for God, for the living God. Three times in that first verse. When can I go find, I need God. It's God my soul is thirsting for. And I have to give him some credit because in my own life, in those moments, sometimes there's counterfeit things that I can turn to before God. The psalmist had clarity here. But if we're real, sometimes we're indoctrinated culturally to look for for contentment, for relationships. Relief for context and other things. And there's obvious ones that we see worshipped in our culture all the time. Sex and alcohol. But there's also things like isolation where we hide ourselves away and disconnect from community. We can just numb our brains by turning on Netflix and just sitting there and trying to distract ourselves for as as long. We can dive into work and just give ourselves to something that isn't the full context of, of who and what we're called to do but the author here chooses the superior source. Says, I know what it is my soul longs for when life is chasing me down. It's the living God. The living God is the only thing that will help me make sense of this circumstance. And I wanna say that to us today, church. If you are walking through this moment where you're like the deer panting for a stream because something is coming against you, the only thing that will fully satisfy that will fully give you the hope you're looking for. It's the living God. It's the stream of his presence. It's the flow of his Holy Spirit in our lives. Nothing else can fully and completely carry us through those circumstances. And then the author gets almost embarrassingly, brutally honest with God. And this is where I want to land for the next couple of minutes. My tears have been my food, day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Yeah, I know I need God, but okay, God, where are you in the midst of this? I remember in some of those moments in my life, praying prayers that would generously be called prayers. They were more like rants, expressive monologues to the Lord, rated uh, 14A at times and above and beyond. You know, like moments where I'm really angry at God. And here I see the psalmist almost affirming that reality. It's like, where are you, God? In the midst of my hardship, I thought you would be here and I can't find you. And then he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng, the word throng, I always just like catch it. throng. I had to practice saying it, throng, and lead them in procession. the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. It's referring to the moments and times where the whole nation of Israel would come together in the city of Jerusalem to worship to celebrate, to mark moments of God's faithfulness and goodness. And the author saying, I remember those moments when life felt so good, when everyone was with me, when we were singing songs and God was so close and there was this sense of his nearness and the joy of community and his presence. He said, I remember that, but it feels like it's a long ways away from this moment that I'm standing in now. And this author just raw, unfiltered emotion poured out on God. And the incredible thing is that God doesn't actually seem that offended by it. Remember, this is a song instructed to be sung in front of God's people. It messes with me, that little bit of the beginning. It's not this private little journal entry. It's actually like God saying, no, I want my people to understand that I can handle the unfiltered them. And I like to suggest that not only does God handle it, he actually delights in it. He delights in the, the space that comes when we trust him enough to bring the fullness of who we are to him, that we can trust him with the deepest thoughts, longings, disappointments, hurts, anger, lust, pride, abuse, neglect in our heart. He can handle it. And when we trust him with that space, I would like to suggest that he delights in that. Through these 150 poems and songs in the book of Psalms, we see this principle time and time and time again. We see the author saying, God, I don't know where you are. I feel like my life's about to come to an end. I don't know how I'm going to get through this this raw, brutal honesty and emotion that seems to be this principle of these songs, something that God wants to invest in his people's understanding of who he is and how they deal with the hardship of their life. God isn't offended by our honesty. And in these moments, we can, when we walk through stuff like this, we can look to songs and psalms like this and be encouraged that God invites our frustration, our questions, our raw emotion. His shoulders are broad enough to carry it all. And he carries it well. Then he goes into the second, this part of the psalm that actually is repeated twice, three times actually. In Psalm 43, it's a repeated a third time. In fact, scholars think that Psalm 42 and 43 is actually one psalm in two parts. And uh, it's evidenced in, in how it's written in the original languages and obviously repeating language. It says this, why are you cast down Or in despair and discouraged, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Why are you uh, moaning or roaring within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And I think this scripture here is the one that I really want to land on, this verse, this thought. Because after this author has poured out all of this uncomfortable, raw, difficult emotion about how he's feeling, he does two things. First of all, he asks his soul a question. He says, why are you cast down? To me, this is so insightful in a culture that worships emotions. In a culture that idolizes emotions, that almost teaches us that whatever you feel is true, it's your fullness of reality. Here it's saying, hey, maybe your emotions have validity, maybe there's a place and perspective for them, but maybe they're not always telling you 100% of the story of what's going on. And maybe it's okay to ask yourself a question when you're feeling something rather than diving into the fullness of your feelings. That's what the author does here. Why are you cast down? Maybe how he's feeling isn't the full reality of the situation. And I think what we're seeing here is a challenge not to fully trust our feelings at face value. We don't have to live by our feelings alone. And we see this brutal honesty here, not faith-filled or at our best, but this is the starting point of the psalm, but it's leading towards this question, why are, you dis- why are you cast down? So first, he asks his soul a question, but secondly, he gives it instruction. And here's the turning point. Uh, I hesitate to use it, the word pivot. Here is a pivot. It's, it's a pandemic word that needs to not carry on with us for a while. But suddenly, we're shown in the psalm, that there's a moment that we can choose, in spite of our feelings, in spite of our circumstances, even in spite of, of how difficult the moment of our life is, that we can turn and power pivot to a different perspective. That we can reorient our feelings and submit them to the truth of who God is, rather than being defined by our emotions. And there's power in that, there's freedom in that. There's hope in that. There's life in that. The stream of God's presence exists in that moment where we take all of the raw things that we feel and the things that we've walked through and we say, God, my soul, I'm going to give it instruction. And what's the instruction given here? Hope in God. Hope in God. So we can train ourselves to do this. It seems to me in this psalm that the psalmist, the author, does two things. The first thing he does is he acknowledges his reality, and then he affirms God's rule. And we can do that too. We can acknowledge I can acknowledge my reality over here. This is what I'm walking through. It's real. It hurts. It's difficult. It's complex. I don't know how I'm going through this. I don't know if I'm going to make it, God. I don't see you being just in this moment. I don't understand why you would allow these difficult things to happen. And then we can go over here and we can affirm his rule. But God, I know some things about you. I know that you're good, even when I don't understand it. I know from reading your Bible that you never, ever let me down, like we sang this morning. I know that you're going to walk with me and sustain me and take me through this. And if I'll allow you, you're going to let me grow and become stronger and more like you in this circumstance. So God, I don't understand, but I'm going to affirm your rule in this moment. But God, and the psalmist does this too, it really sucks. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I cannot walk through this anymore. I think I'm going to die in the middle of this. But God, I'm telling you, I know who you are. I know you're faithful. I know your word says that you will not abandon me. You will not forsake me in the midst of this. That you're going to use all things for your good. For those that love you and are called according to your purpose. So I'm going to trust you in the middle of this. And so when we walk through moments like this, we sit in the tension of these spaces where we can acknowledge our reality, but we can affirm his rule. And when we choose to walk that way, hope like a river streams into our souls, and we know that God will walk through it with us and through us in these circumstances and the hardest things we walk through. I was reading this commentary by Derek Kidner on this psalm, and he said this, it's an important dialogue between two aspects of the believer who is at once a man of convictions and a creature of change. He's called to live in eternity. His mind stayed on God, but also in time where his mind and body are under pressures that cannot and should not leave him impassive. I like this, we live in eternity, but we also live in time. We live in eternity, we live in time. There's the reality of our situation and there's the affirmation of his rule. And we can have confidence in both of those things. The author goes on to rant some more. My soul is cast down. I know I just said, soul, why are you cast down? Hope in God. But my soul is cast down. I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Geographically, these were the areas furthest from Jerusalem. They were right on the perimeter of the nation. They were the furthest you could get. Away from God's presence and God's spirit. I feel really far away from you still, God. And then he says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This word here, it refers to like the deepest parts of the seas. And he's, what what the author is saying here is like, in this moment of crisis, there's no splashing In the the, the simple pleasures of the shallows, I need the deepest place. The deepest part of me needs to connect with the deepest part of you, God. I need you desperately. I need you, and I need your water. It says like the waterfalls, all your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. Rush over me, God. Come and meet me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God God of my life. This speaks not to a circumstance now but it speaks to the character and nature of God. He's affirming God's rule again, saying, "Listen, you are the God of my life. You're here with me in the good and the bad." He ends again with this repeat of verse 5 where he says, "Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope" in God for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God I was exploring this word hope and I'm like God I want to find some really secret powerful supernatural truth locked up in this word you know that no one's ever preached I just want like I I want to I'm going to dig deep enough until I find and and you know what it didn't happen (laughs) this word hope in the original Hebrew, it was written, and it means essentially to wait expectantly. Kind of like hope. And we see this word actually all through the Psalms. It's, it's interchanged the word hope and wait in our Psalms. Uh, for example, let me read you a couple. Psalm 69 and verse 3 says, I'm exhausted for crying for help. My throat is parched, my eyes are swollen with weeping, affirming or acknowledging his his reality here. And then he says, I'm waiting, same word in the Hebrew, hoping expectantly for my God to help me. Psalm 38, 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait, do I hope expectantly. Expectantly. O oh Lord my God, who will answer? Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait, who hope expectantly for the word, for the Lord, same word. Last one, Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, God's people, hope in the Lord. Wait expectantly for him. For with the Lord there is a steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. There are times in our circumstances where waiting expectantly is the posture we take. When we have done everything we can, we stand and we trust that God is at work. We can come to him with all of our unfiltered self and say, God, this is going on, and we pour out our hearts and we pour out our spirit and we trust him with those deepest parts of ourselves, the raw, unfiltered, honest parts of ourselves. And We come to this part of who we are and we say, God, yet you still are in control. I can still trust you. I know you're good even though my circumstances want to tell me otherwise. I can stand on the goodness and the faithfulness of my God. Maybe you've never considered the fact that Jesus cares about the practical things you go through. I think there can come a disconnect between our faith life and our life life. We just kind of get through the Sunday mornings. We know it's healthy and good, and that's part of our spiritual life, and that's wonderful. But then we go through our life, and it's busy and it's work related, and and there's family and responsibilities, and we, we get so caught up. And then, oh, but Sunday's my rhythm to kind of reconnect me. There's a measure of real good, healthy habit that that is, but there is a reality where God is looking to come into those circumstances of your life, Monday to Saturday. He's interested in what you walk through day to day. He's interested in the the battles of your soul, the disappointments of your heart, the hurts and wounds that maybe you felt are, are too much for him to carry. Let me encourage you to start with you but end with him. That's what this psalm teaches me. This is what the psalms teach me. I get to start with me and all my messed up, raw, honest emotion. But I end with him. I invite Riley to come up. We're going to end here. The moment of worship and prayer, communion and reflection. Jesus can handle the unfiltered me. Aren't you glad for that? He doesn't need you to be impressive. Actually, he finds you most impressive at your honest, vulnerable self. Strange. No filter required. He doesn't look and see. In fact, I think God would say, listen, I find you most attractive when you're at your most honest self. Warts and all. Mistakes and all. Failures and all. Hurts and all. Sinful patterns we can't seem to break and all. Don't keep them in the dark, bring them into the light. I want to carry them. Not only can he handle the unfiltered you, I think he delights in carrying that part of who we are. I also think, if I can say it, even take it a step further, I think he requires it. In a deep discipleship to Jesus, he requires the unfiltered me. I remember years ago, Stephanie and I, are going to be married for 15 years this October. And we're going to Portugal and we're leaving our children behind. Sorry, Anna, and we're leaving all of you and we're going to have a great time for two weeks celebrating 15 years of marriage. Thanks, that's fine. About halfway through the story arc of our marriage, about seven years ago, we hit a bit of a a rough moment in our marriage where we realized that we had learned some really unhealthy patterns of communication. I had learned to not be fully honest about things that were frustrating to me and my motive was, well, I'm just here to serve her and lay down my life and I'll just let that go and let that go. And that's a good motive. But for seven years, sometimes you have to learn to be honest. (laughs) Stephanie is conflict-averse and didn't really like talking about things that were difficult. And so we were a perfect storm of a great marriage. I mean, we've had a great marriage for all our years, but every marriage faces challenges. And I I remember this moment, it was a really hard moment for us because we had to risk being really brutally honest with each other. And there were some tears, there was some anger, there was some disappointment, but the net result of it was a way better marriage. It was like a catalyst to our marriage as we started to traverse these bumpy grounds and realize, man, our love is stronger than some of these little things. And it actually grows more resilient as we're at this level of honest with us. And I think it's a beautiful picture of God's invitation to us as his followers. He doesn't need you to filter yourself. He doesn't want you to. He wants all of us to come before him and say, God, I don't know if I can trust you with this thing in my life, rather than just putting on a show and feeling good and just kind of tucking it into the corner or, or segregating your life into different compartments. He says, no, bring it all messes, failures, hurts, disappointments. I love to carry it all and I'm not afraid of it. My shoulders are broad enough and I died and rose again so that you didn't have to walk in the hiddenness or the weight of those things alone. Bring your unfiltered self to me. I delight in it. And God in those moments not only invites us to cast our cares on him, but he brings healing. He brings restoration. And he brings us strength. And sometimes it's not strength waiting on the other side of the valley. Once we get through it, but it's a sense that he's walking with us through the hardship, that we're not alone, that we can trust his goodness and his providence.